Welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. Can you describe for us, describe for my listener, where we are? So can you sort of situate us geographically a little bit? Yeah, we're in the Nanahagen uh, Park, which is uh, halfway along the Nanahagen Brook. There's a pond that was built, I think, in the early 19th century here, um, just up from the swimming pool in Pleasantville, New York. And um, it's a short tributary, about eight miles uh, tributary of the Sawmill River. And then the Sawmill River is itself a tributary to to the the Hudson Hudson River, um, right? That's Michael Inglis and I taking a walk in a strange little pocket of semi-wilderness in our village of Pleasantville, New York, which is the subject of his recent book, Woods and Water, Walking New York's Nanahagen Brook. Michael and I know each other because he's part of the Conservation Advisory Council for the village, and I'm liaison to that group as village trustee. We've also recently been on a committee working on a tree ordinance. Michael Inglis has an interesting background. He was born in Pakistan and grew up there and in the United Kingdom. He's a retired science educator, environmentalist, gardener, and naturalist. Over the past 25 years, he's walked extensively this area that many people in my community don't even know exists, a patchwork of woods and wetland that surround the Nanahagan watershed. Nanahagan is a brook that originates at a pond called Munson Pond that's up in the hills above where we live. The brook comes downstream beside some power lines and along the Catskill Aqueduct. It flows into a pond, then ducks underground alongside the village swimming pool, re-emerges as a brook, and then flows through the more developed areas, often underground and invisible. And eventually it empties into the Sawmill River, which in turn flows into the Hudson. One of the things that attracted me to Michael's book is his choice of this odd piece of land. Rather than focusing on one of the many parks and reserves that are within shouting distance, he chose this piece of land, in part, of course, because it's within walking distance of where he lives. But it's curious, it functions as a kind of wilderness in spite of the fact that it's surrounded by human-dominated spaces on all sides. And it's cut through with signs of the impact of humans from the invasive plants that have taken over large patches to the plastic bottles Michael has taken it upon himself to clean up. The book often totters back and forth between a celebration of the natural beauty and the acknowledgement of all the damage that has been wrought by humans. For example, when he describes the impact of Hurricane Ida, which brought record levels of water coursing through this little valley. The book made me think of the literal ways in which human culture reshapes the natural world. We often talk about this shaping of the natural world in figurative ways, but of course, humans literally shape the natural world. There's a passage in Noah's Garden by Sarah Stein, which was published in 1993 and was one of the first books to make a strong case for gardening with native plants, where she describes finding an arrowhead buried under some stone rubble near her house. Thinking of the person who must have lost the arrowhead, she imagines what the land would have looked like before the arrival of the Europeans. She writes, Going further back in time requires mental bulldozing. I push three centuries of accumulated silt back up from the swamp to the surrounding slopes, molding them higher and steeper. The outcrop all but disappears beneath the soil. Acorns from the one white oak that now shades the rock 
grow up in my imagination, and looking down what has become a rolling incline, I see the stream below flowing deep and unimpeded through a narrow wooded valley. Pleasantville is a village smack dab in the middle of Westchester County, about a 50-minute train ride from New York City. It's only a little under two miles squared, which is why it's surprising that it contains this little area of relative wilderness, currently home to deer, foxes, coyotes, bobcats, occasionally a bear, and for a while, a pioneering beaver. So the village put wire around these trees to protect them. Right. But uh, further in... It looks like it did, It worked. We got uh, here. This right, is I'm, a big... I'm going to uh, follow you. Are we going around? Yeah, or? but I just want to talk a little bit about oh, how... Oh, here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this one is the biggest tree that the beaver brought down. This is probably a 24-inch maple. It was probably the size of it. And I remember coming and watching it when the beaver started chewing and yeah. thinking, my goodness, he's taking out, taking, going to take down a big tree. <laughs> and uh, gradually it took the beaver about four weeks to chew around the entire oh, tree. That's some dedication. Yeah, some dedication. So the... Not to mention smaller mammals such as rabbits, bats, shrews and voles, and lots of birds, of course. It remains undeveloped thanks to its awkward topography and to the existence of two things— a series of major power lines and the Catskill Aqueduct. So now we're walking on top of the aqueduct. On top of the aqueduct. So tell yes. me what you know about the aqueduct. So the aqueduct was built um, between 1912 and 1916 to supply water to New York City. It uh, runs for about 60 to 70 miles from um, the Catskills down uh, to the uh, Kensico Reservoir. And I read that it works the same way that the Roman aqueducts did in the That's sense right. that it's all gravity. Except for a few spots where they have uh, what they call siphons. Yeah. Where they um, narrow the uh, diameter of the uh, tunnel. Yeah. And the, because of the water pressure, it forces it on, down and then back up again the other ah, side. interesting. So actually there's no pumping involved So that's how they, so they use siphons to manage when yeah. it has to go down and, uh, I mean, uh, up down. and then back down again. Yeah. Down then back up. Ah, okay. What we see of the aqueduct is, of course, the outside, a raised path covered with grass and surrounded by wildflowers. Some native, like the wild geranium that was in bloom when we were walking, and many invasive plants that were brought over from other parts of the world, often as specimen horticultural plants that have now taken over in disturbed areas such as this one. It takes an effort, similar to what Sarah Stein does in her book, to imagine what it would have looked like at different times in the past. So, and one of the things you talk, write about in your book is the history of this area. So, as has come up in some of my other episodes, the geography here was shaped by the Ice Age, where you had this massive glacier, right? Yeah, and they um, carved the, the river valleys. Yeah. The glaciers carved the river valleys, and it was all covered in ice until about 12,000 years ago, when it all melted as the ice retreated north in a warming period. And then uh, native peoples have been here for those 10,000 years until the um, Europeans arrived with um, Henry Hudson on, up the Hudson River. The Hudson River, a 315-mile-long river that begins poetically at the lake Tierra of the Clouds in the Adirondacks and flows out into the Atlantic Ocean shortly after it makes its dramatic course along the New York City skyline now bears the name of English navigator Henry Hudson, who explored the river in 1609 
for the Dutch East India Company in search of a Northeast Passage. The previous inhabitants of the land were walking, tribes who spoke a language called Munsi and who lived here for 10,000 years before the arrival of the Europeans, would of course have called it by a different name. And they, I imagine they pro- there was probably some for- farming when the native people were I'm here. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, and some managing of the woods, but it would have been largely wooded. Largely wooded, yeah. and there would have been lots of beavers on the stream. Yeah. And lots of beaver dams <laughs> all the way up and down the stream, and they yeah. would have been managing the, the, the water flow and regulating it for everybody else, and there would have been lots of, of the wild native species. And it's totally changed in the last um, 300, 400 years since the colonists came. Phillipsburg Manor was one of the first farms in this area, and this area was part of Phillipsburg Manor and the farming. And as you can see, there's all the stone walls around the fields, uh, which show that this entire area was um, farmland. And during that time, the beavers were completely extirpated, and the bobcats were completely extirpated, and the bears were killed. And all of the big mammals, except for the deer, were basically driven out. And what's interesting to me is how much the big mammals have come back in the last uh, 10 years, actually, Mm. Um, which I think is really surprising and and quite interesting how these large mammals are now habituating to human habitation because there isn't any other space left. Right. So the bobcats have certainly been here a while and come back and the beavers have come back and uh, the bears actually have just come back in the last uh, in 2015 there were no bears in Westchester but they moved in from their Massachusetts bears they moved south through Connecticut into north um, northeastern uh, Westchester the uh, two big parks up there the Mianus River Gorge Park and um, the Ward Pound Ridge and actually there's breeding bears now in Ward Pound Ridge and Mianus River Gorge and that's only 15 miles away from here so when the juveniles get kicked out of the den they have to go and they They wander off and we've had um, quite a lot of bears down here in the last few years. Do we have any idea how many bears have lived around here? Um, I've seen bears almost every year. Really? Yeah. It's amazing. In the last, in the last, since 2016. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing that a mammal that big can coex- can live in an area that is so heavily right. populated. Yeah. Um, they, 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 they stay quietly to themselves in these corridors. So this mm-hmm. is really like a, a liminal corridor to me. It's a liminal space. It's mm-hmm. between subdivisions to the south and subdivisions to the north. And it's really in many ways protected and, you know, as we saw, isolated and and there's not much human activity back there, so it's yeah. a great spot for the animals to... One of the terms that gets thrown around is the term of wildlife corridors, right? Because right. animals, in order to move from one generation to the next, a lot of them, like the bears, need to be able to occupy new spaces, and so for them to be able to survive, the wild areas have... They can't, it can't just be all these isolated pockets. There have no, to they, be they need to be these corridors. Right. Yeah. And the, the stream beds... Mm. are real corridors, and, and the aqueduct itself is a real corridor, I think. And the power lines, in the a way, serve that purpose, too. Well. Yeah, yes. so that's a way in which people sort of unwittingly have created this mm-hmm. um, habitat for, for all these different animals. Um, so then, so, okay, so you talked us up to the farmland period, and then I wrote down the date. It was sometime in the 19th century that the train came in. 1846 
railroad was introduced to Pleasantville. Right. So that's the point at which it kind of officially becomes a sub- suburb of New York City. Yeah, I, uh, I think a little bit later, but there was a quarry where ShopRite is. Oh, right. And there, there was yeah. a spur of the railroad that went into the quarry across uh, Broadway, actually. The white marble used to build St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan was quarried just up the road from where we're walking, at a place which is now dominated by a local supermarket. So it was initially not so much for people as for stone? I think that that part of the track, I'm sure going further north, there were other reasons for connecting it to, for people as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how many commuters there were to New York City in the 1840s. I think it was probably, you know, <laughs> no, a little no. bit later on. <laughs> I just meant once you have a train, then right. you open up that possibility. Up right, right, right. Obviously, it's not full-fledged suburbia at that point. Right. Um, the, the geese are really, there's a lot going on today. There's a lot going on, yeah. <laughs> and my sense is that the reason that it ceased to be farmland, I mean, there are probably a number of reasons, right? But one of them is that the, the soil was not very well tended to, right? And so it kind of... Um, yeah, I don't know, it's interesting, road. but actually it wasn't until after the war that the subdivisions in the 70s, a mm. lot of the big subdivisions up, um, in the upper reaches of the Nanahagen watershed around Deerfield and Pheasant Run. Mm. They were all built in the 70s. They were all farmland until up mm. until the 70s. Mm. So it's so, more recent than, you, than you, you would think. So it's probably more about just needing places for houses yeah. within proximity of New York City. That's right. Yeah. yeah. The demand for housing is as strong as ever now. This spring, the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, tried to pass a housing compact through the state budget that would have overridden local zoning in order to increase the housing stock in New York State by 10 percent. The housing shortage in the New York City area in particular has caused rents and house prices to rise dramatically, further deepening the divide between the wealthy and the less wealthy. Hochul's proposal failed. Rightly, in my opinion, since it did not take into account the limited capacity of small communities like my own, which, incidentally, is already in the process of increasing its housing supply by about 10%. But the need for housing is real, and thinking of these pressures, I can't help but wonder what the future has in store for these semi-wild places like the Nanahagen Brook watershed. At the same time, walking literally on top of the thousands of gallons of water making their way to New York City from a reservoir in the Catskills, I'm reminded of the dependence of large cities like New York on all the natural spaces that keep them alive by providing crucial ecosystem services, including, of course, clean water and oxygen. Spaces like the Nanahagen Brook embody what some have called a post-wild world. This is no pristine wilderness. This is a um, Japanese um, honeysuckle. This is an invasive, but you can see it's all, all over. It's all the place, over. Yeah. It has a lovely yeah. scent in the evenings. And then you've got the wild, this invasive uh, mugwort. Mugwort, yeah. Which is Another ash tree. We're just clambering over. <clears throat> yeah, you can see how. Yeah, the em- emerald ash borer came in and uh, completely killed it. And we come across other signs of human reshaping, such as a pile of beer cans, presumably left by teenagers, perhaps from the adjacent cottage school, a residential treatment program for emotionally troubled kids. 
In Planting in a Post-Wild World, a fabulous landscape design book that I recommend, the two authors, Thomas Reiner and Claudia West, reflect on their childhood experiences with nature. This is in the preface of the book. Reiner talks about moving to a neighborhood in Birmingham, Alabama, where the empty woodlots next to the new development where they lived rapidly disappeared over time. West's story is different, however. She grew up in East Germany in the 1980s in what she describes as a gray and polluted world, marred by coal and uranium mining and industrial agriculture. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, however, nature was allowed to heal, and the result, as West describes it, was an incredible transformation. Visiting the industrial core of former East Germany now is a life-changing experience, she writes. We catch safe-to-eat trout in the once highly toxic streams. Tourists from all over the world come to the new landscape of central Germany, a landscape of clear lakes and shady forests filled with resorts and expensive yachts. Of course, it's interesting that this transformation of the natural landscape also makes it more valuable and more desirable. I love the juxtaposition of these two perspectives. It's a reminder that nature is resilient, and as much as we tend to degrade natural spaces, we can also improve them, or just let them improve themselves. Back in the Nanahagen Brook watershed, Michael pointed out an area that was farmland not that long ago. Okay, we're back on the village land, which is interesting. The village owns this little piece of land up here. Okay, noted. Which is very, <laughs> very unusual. I love these, uh, these birch trees, they're really old. This one here got struck by lightning, and I talk about that in my book. You can see how half of it was completely blasted away. Yet it's still hanging on there and doing, doing quite well. Listen to those birds. So yeah, when I first came here, this was an open field with grass, and there was a horse on it. Really? Which uh, kept the grass and, you know, down and now you can see it's basically a successional field and there's a pear and uh, maples and uh, other, lots of other trees yeah. that are what must be 30 40 feet high now so and you get to see what happens to farmland yeah. when it when it returns to, to, to yeah. forest yeah this yeah. is a successional field here now this of course is what has happened to huge swaths of the northeast that were farmed by Europeans and have subsequently returned to forest as we're reminded all the time here when we walk through the forest and see the old stone walls that belong to these farms. The forest has returned just as the beavers that were hunted to near extinction, and the bears are now making a comeback as well. So what, what are your hopes for the future? So this is where we are now, you know, in this kind of, as you said, this sort of liminal space, which is not ideal. Um, you know, there are lots of invasive and yet, you know, animals such as bears and bobcats and coyotes and lots of birds are able to survive here. What are your thoughts about the future? What, what would your kind of ideal vision for? Well, I'd, I, I'd, I'd like hope it remains protected. I can't see there's any uses for it, so I think that's really important. Uh, there's some beautiful swallows. If you look, they, they nest underneath the bridge here. Mm. And they have, um, they're amazing aerialists. They, swoop up and down over the stream, over the pond here, eating insects. But I'm sorry, I got distracted. No, 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 it's, it's easy to get distracted. There's, there is a lot going on. My hope is that people um, appreciate it. 
and yeah. then and then they will care for it. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe I mean I would say perhaps also there can be more kind of opening up of nature. So you have some parts of the sawmill that were covered over that have been daylighted, as they say, right? Right, they, town right? in Yonkers, yes, um, they did a nice job there. And uh, so perhaps that can be part of the vision of the future as well, you know, is to have more of these corridors rather than less. Well, I think more nature, the better. Yeah, yeah. okay, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> on that note. <laughs> well, we less less humans, more nature, right? <laughs> Woods and Water, Walking New York's Nanahagen Brook by Michael Inglis with illustrations by Gichi Kopilek is available from Hickory Nut Books. Check it out. Coming up, I'm working on a few things, including the continuation of my discussion of Abrams' Spell of the Sensuous with Trevian Stanger. So if you haven't read it yet, that's another one you can pick up. Take care, and I'll be back soon.